Have you ever read something on Facebook or one of these places, and then they've got this little thing that pops up and says, fact checker, fact checker, not fat checker, fat, fact checker, not fat checker, fat checker, fact checker, this was never said by that person. I'm like, okay. But that's not important because somebody said it. Because that story can't exist over here if it didn't somewhere happen. You hear what I'm saying? So if it didn't happen to this person, it happened to someone else, but the story's good. Yeah, it's biased still for more. Okay. So it says here, Catherine Hepburn, in her own words, Once when I was a teenager, my father and I were standing in a line. Oh, come on. Phone. We're standing in a line to buy um, uh, tickets for the circus. Finally, there was only one family between us and the ticket counter. This family made a big impression on me. There were eight children, all probably under the age of 12. The way they were dressed, you could see that they didn't have a lot of money, but their clothes were neat and clean. The children were well behaved, all of them standing in a line, two by two, behind their parents, holding hands. They were excitedly jabbering about the clowns, the animals, and all the acts they would be seeing that night. By the excitement you could sense, they had never been to the circus before. It would be a highlight of their lives. The father and mother were at the head of the pack, standing proud as could be. The mother was holding husband's hand, looking up at him as if to say, you're my knight in shining armor. He was smiling, enjoying seeing his family happy. The ticket lady asked the man how many tickets he wanted. He proudly reported, I'd like to buy eight children's tickets and two adult tickets so I can take my family to the circus. The ticket lady stated the price. The man's wife did go of his hand. Her hand dropped. The man's lips began to quiver. Then he leaned a little closer and asked, How much did you say? The ticket lady stated the price, and the man didn't have enough money. How? Uh, the man didn't have enough money. How was he supposed to turn and tell his eight kids that he didn't have enough money to take them to the circus? Seeing what was going on, my dad reached into his pocket, pulled out a $20 bill, and then dropped it on the ground. We were not wealthy in any sense of the, uh, not wealthy in any sense of the world, in brackets. My father bent down, picked up the $20 bill, tapped the man on his shoulder and said, Excuse me, sir, this fell out of your pocket. The man understood what was going on. He wasn't begging for a handout, but certainly appreciated the help in a desperate, heartbreaking, embarrassing situation. He looked straight into my dad's eyes, took my dad's hand in both of his, squeezed tightly onto the $20 bill, and with his lips quivering and a tear streaming down his cheek, he replied, Thank you, thank you, sir. This really means a lot to me and my family. My father and I went back to our car um, uh, and drove home. The $20 that my dad gave away is what we were going to buy our own tickets with. Although we didn't get to see the circus that night, we both felt joy inside of us. It was far greater than seeing the circus could ever have provided. That day I learned the value to give. 
The giver is bigger than the receiver. If you want to be large, larger than life, learn to give. Love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only with what you're expecting to give, which is everything. The importance of giving, blessing others, can never be overemphasized because there's always joy in giving. Learn to make someone happy by acts of giving. It says there, Catherine Hepburn, from everything good in the world. Now you understand what I'm saying. It doesn't matter who wrote or told that story. What's important is to understand the essence of that story, even if it were a story. It happens that the gist of it is true. The guts of it is true, that when you give, there is something that happens that's more powerful than receiving. And um, so, yeah, I, I just want to say to you this morning, the most powerful thing that you can do is to give. When Sean read that scripture this morning, the one thing that jumped out at me was this, is that you are blessed to be a blessing. I'm never blessed to be blessed. I'm never just blessed to be, wow, it's so good to be blessed. I've got an overabundance in my bank account. When I get something, it enables me to give something. I have a string of people that contact me every week on WhatsApp or whatever and say, Pastor Dave, have you not got something for me? I have this, this, or this. My mom's been through a surgery. I don't have money. After I've paid her bills, I don't have money for food this month. That kind of thing. And for every one of those situations, before God be my witness, I would love to take out my wallet, that's who I am, and just be able to give them something. And here's the thing. When you start doing that, you find that there's always an extra coming to you somehow that you are able to do more. So please don't ever come to me with the argument that giving is not from God. That giving is not part of his word. That giving is not his character. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, when Billy Graham was 92 years old, he was struggling with Parkinson's disease. In January, a month before his 93rd birthday, leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina, invited their favorite son, Billy Graham, to a luncheon in his honor. Billy initially hesitated to accept the invitation because of his struggles with Parkinson's disease. But the Charlotte leaders said, we don't expect a major address, just come and let us honor you, so he agreed. After, the wonderful, uh, after wonderful things were said about him, Dr. Graham stepped to the podium, looked at the crowd and said, sorry, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle, punching the tickets of every passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket, couldn't find his ticket, so he reached into his trouser pockets. 
It wasn't there. He looked in his briefcase but couldn't find it. Then he looked at the seat beside him. He still couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are, and I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor, the conductor continued down the aisle punching tickets, and as he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around and saw the great physicist down on his knees, hands and knees, looking under the seats for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Okay. Having said that, Billy Graham continued, See the suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what the occasion is. This is the suit in which I'll be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. May your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and may nothing but happiness come through your door. Now here's the kicker. Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no Phew. Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. May each of us have lived our lives so that when our ticket is punched, we don't have to worry where we are going <laughs> about where we are going. Life without God is pointless. When we did that funeral on Friday, I realized, and as we sang this morning, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. And it shouldn't just be words to a song on a Sunday morning. It should be the remembrance of our lives every morning when we get up. The goodness of God. I want you to go back to 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to try and continue to get through a subject that I'm really desperately trying to give you all of, but every week so far, I have got stuck somewhere in a rabbit hole on the way to the point, so... Hopefully this morning we'll get closer to the fact about what I was preaching on Good Friday. So turn with me to 1 Peter 1 as revision this morning. And um, let's try again. 1 Peter 1 verse 10, I think. Uh, so it's talking about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets who were prophesying and speaking. And it says... Verse 10, concerning this salvation, 
the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Say grace that was to come to me. Say undeserved. It's more than just unmerited favor. It's more than undeserved. It's God's goodness personified, okay? The grace that was to come to me, um, to you and me, searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them. Say, the Spirit of Christ was also operating in and through them. You understand? Was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and some of the translations say glory, others say glories in manifold number, and the glories that would follow. Say glory, follow suffering. You Say glory, follow suffering. Because you see, whatever you're going through, when you've come through it on the other side, there will be glory. There will be some kind of praise and manifestation of what God... In fact, I'm just going to quote a scripture right now. It says, um, the, how does that scripture go in Corinthians? It says, um, for what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. And then it says this, all these things are working when they've passed an exceedingly great weight of glory in your life. So as I go through life and experience stuff and suffer certain stuff and get certain victories, at the end of that, I look back and there's just one conclusion. God is good. He was good in the situation. He carried me through. He was there every step of the way. In fact, if He hadn't been there, I wouldn't have made it. I'm reminded of a certain situation. Um, there was a friend of ours in Whitbank. He'd left his job or he'd been retrenched. I can't remember what it was. He'd opened up his own company and somebody had taken money from him and, and, and he'd lost money and the whole thing ended up in ashes. And he was very depressed one night and so he decided to just get out of the house and walk to the shop. This is probably 20 years ago, he walked to the shop, but he had to pass through a park and a little bit of like a wild sanctuary and then over the road to the... And when he got just close to the edge of the park, there was a dark area under some trees, and as he passed through, he fell over something and thought it was a rock or a log or something he hadn't seen. Um, and when he managed to start getting up, two guys fell out of the tree, and the thing he'd fallen over was another guy that had been lying in the path to trip him up, and they started to mug him for his cell phone and his wallet and stuff. And one guy had a knife. And the guy constantly was like stabbing him on his chest. He fought them off and, and he had a little pock knife like mine and he was trying to get it out. And the one guy had his hand over it, bending his hand. And there was like this, this scuffle. Finally, he ran into a dam that was filled with half water, half mud, half sewage. And he ran in and they didn't follow him. And it was the middle of winter and he stayed there until they left. He went home in this bad situation and his wife had to hose him down outside the house. When they finally got him out of his clothes, 
his chest was covered in the, the, the shirt and the vest were covered in splits of knife attack on his shirt, multiple. But when he took his shirt off, there was not one mark on his chest. There was a mark in his left arm where just one little flesh wound came through. To prove that, if you didn't know it already by the marks on the shirt, there was a knife involved. But he was safe. That situation stuck with him forever and is with him to this day that God is a real, present help in the time of need. We live in a fallen world, and certain stuff befalls us in this fallen world, but God is never far. Amen? So we're talking about a grace that comes to the New Testament church. And Jesus dies on the cross. The third day he's raised, and when he's raised on the third day, there's a gloriousness that enters in to the born-again believer. It becomes the most victorious moment. And as I said to you on Good Friday, in the old days when I started out with Good Friday, and it's amazing how certain stuff changes. In the old days on Good Friday, you would cry as if you were at your best friend's funeral. Don't look at me like that. We would look at Jesus on the cross on Good Friday and we go, <laughs> and, and, and the, it was almost this, the, the religiousness of, you know, if I can really appreciate his suffering and he did this for me, I, I'll cry. And I said to you, there's a song with awesome words on an old rugged cross, you know, there's a hill far away with an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. Who's suffering and who's shame? Jesus took your suffering and he took your shame and he became sin for you. But that was that day. But what he actually achieved when he became your great replacement is that you became the righteousness of God in Christ. He exchanged that and gave you him. He took you and gave you him. To put it in sort of like really plain language. And that's the gloriousness that follows. The church should look at that emblem. Understand what took place there. Have appreciation and thankfulness for it. But it is your emblem of victory. It is your flag and your banner that says his banner over me is love. And so tradition would have us you know, in that old state. But that's not the truth. The church has come a long way and we're starting to understand righteousness and grace and we should have understood it long ago because there were people 40, 50 years ago that understood that. But it's like the church goes through these cycles. We understand it, we lose it. We understand it, we lose it. We understand But we should get to the place where we actually really understand it, receive it and take hold of it and make it our own. That we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And now the earth is filling with His glory, which is in each one of you. You are those vessels. You are carrying that glory. <laughs> okay, so, so, so let's just 
Let's just do something. I'm going to go to the very end of the thought and then work backwards this morning. Go with me to Hebrews 9. What is the time? Okay, so we've got a few minutes. Yeah, there's so much going on right now, but uh, yeah, let's, let's see how far we can go. All right, I'm going to read as fast as I can. Sacrifice in an earthly tabernacle is the heading in this Bible. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, talking about the earthly tabernacle. A tabernacle was set up in his first room where a lampstand and a table and a consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had a golden altar of incense and, and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tables of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of God, uh, were the cherubim of glory, say glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, or in other translations, the mercy seat. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. I, I just feel that this is not a mystery that's never been revealed. I just think he said, in the sermon that I'm preaching now, in the letter I'm writing now, I don't want to concentrate right now on the mercy seat. I'll cover it a little bit later or in future writing. It's not that it's never been written about or hasn't been understood. He just was saying, I don't want to cover it now. I don't want to speak about it now, all right? When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and, the, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, the, the people had committed um, in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, in one of the translations it says, as long as the institution of the old, uh, as long as the old was a recognized institution, the new could not appear. Uh, You've you got to get this. You've got to hear this. As long as the old was a recognized institution, the new could not appear. So what had to happen is that the old had to pass away completely, be done away with the old tabernacle, the earthly stuff, and a new one had to be instituted in the above realm. This covenant, the old one, it says, if it had been perfect, there would have been no necessity for another. But because it didn't achieve what it was set out to do, God instituted another. And, and I don't want to get into it this morning because there's not enough time, but the fact is that the blood of bulls and goats could never ever cleanse you from sin only covered it for another year, and the, the, the blood of the bulls and goats could not cleanse your conscience or your consciousness of sin. 
But a more perfect offering came, and John the Baptist points at him and says, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and Jesus becomes that perfected offering, which not only takes away your sin, once and for all, yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus has taken care of your sin. Say yesterday, say today, and forever, Jesus has taken care of my sin. You should be standing on your seat, running around the church going, Woo! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, in the old, when in Exodus, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cut this all to the side. When in Exodus and Leviticus, this thing is discussed about the priesthood going in with the bloods of a bull and then later the blood of a goat or a lamb, the priest would go in and out, in and out with this different blood and he would place the blood with his finger. Nomine Padre? No. <coughs> He would place the blood with his finger on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And then God says in Exodus, He says, There, at the place where the blood is set on the mercy seat, or shall we change its name in a New Testament version this morning and, and call it the throne of grace? Because God says where that mercy seat is, I will come down and sit upon it in a cloud which is called glory, and there I will meet with you. The place was there in the earthly tabernacle, but when Jesus passed through the heavenlies in one not made with hands, he passed through into another place called there. There is it right now, a throne room, of grace that you and I can enter at any time. No high priest has to go for me or on my behalf. I can enter into the throne room of grace and find mercy in my time of need that I might have more grace over and over and over again. There is a glory that follows Christ going to the cross it's only the start of something for mankind. <sighs> ah! Let me throw this in to close this morning. I, this one's watch is not working. What's the time? 9.10. How long have we got? Another 5-10 minutes. Romans 8 says, bump the guy next to you, say, I've I got to hold on to my stuff. <laughs> or just say Dave's got to hold on to his stuff. You are an heir of the Father, Romans 8 says. And a joint... Why is it necessary to say that? If I'm an heir of the Father, that's it. But he adds, and a joint heir with the Son. Why does he specify this joint inheritance? Because 
Jesus' inheritance in the Father and your inheritance in the Father is exactly equal. You're a joint heir with Jesus. God didn't say, okay, well, I've got some heirs to sort out. Jesus, you're the top heir. And then the church will be the, the rest. No, he specifies it. He says, you're an heir of the Father. And your inheritance is joint with Jesus. So Jesus prays in John 17, and I want to preach about this stuff. Jesus prays in John 17, he says, The Father, the glory that I had with you, I have now given it to them. I'm just throwing everything in at the end. You, Ephesians, you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. You are like this artwork that he created to his glory. You with me? Does God make rubbish? Would you imagine that if God created anything and if you look at the sunrise and you look at the sunset and you look at the ocean and look at the mountains, all of them are scattered sunbeams. In other words, what I'm saying, they indicate that there's somewhere a greater light that created them. They are showing you that there's a greater glory somewhere. They give glory in their beauty to the Creator, but they are not the glory. They're just showing you that someone, somewhere, said, let there be light, and there was light, and they were created. But the fact that He's the greatest glory. So wouldn't you imagine that anything He makes indicates glory? So He wouldn't make you substandard that it doesn't give glory to the creator that made you but the fact that you exist this morning and that you were called from before the foundation says that God's handiwork his workmanship his art who is you contains and he has no problem that that would be glorious So, he's the vine, and you are the branches. And the tree has fruit, love, joy, peace, patience. So wherever the branch grows, if you understand what I'm talking about this morning, wherever the branch goes, the vine life goes too. Because you cannot separate the branch and the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. We are one. He who believes in God has become one spirit with Him. So wherever you and I go, we are carriers of the glory of God. And when we enter in, in the consciousness of the atmosphere that I am the vine life, 
And he's saying, I am the branch life. Because the vine and the branches are intimately connected. And wherever the vine goes, the branch goes. Wherever the branch goes, the vine goes. And so when I appear or when I enter in, there is the fruit. I'm only just touching on what God is saying. And this is what God is saying. It's time for the church to leave the confines of a Sunday morning and go to Iraq if it's necessary for you to go, or go to the mall. Same thing. Whether you're in Iraq or at the mall. But when you go, be sure to take me with you. Him talking. Be sure to be memorable of the fact that you're in a relationship that's all-inclusive, that where you go, he goes. And whether it be a smile to somebody, whether it be a hundred rand note that you take out and you see a guy ahead of you and you say, I see that you've only got enough money for a loaf of bread, but here's the money for your bread and go and buy some other stuff and then come back and pay for the rest. Whether it be whatever God tells you to share or to pray for, you are the vine life and you the glory that should follow the sufferings and I want to say to the world, you better look out. The church is awakening. The church is rising from the dust. And in this 40-day period, which normally coincides, and I haven't, I haven't touched the message. In this 40-day period, from the time he rose from the dead, day of Pentecost with those 10 days where they waited he met with him over and over again and said I want to tell you about my kingdom I want to show myself to you as alive and I want to prepare you to be witnesses to speak of the kingdom I want to declare in the spirit something this morning I want to prophesy to the four winds, I want to say, you chose the ceremony, you chose the celebration, you chose the feast and called it the heart of Helderberg, but you had no idea what you were calling and you have no idea what's about to come. This place is going to be filled with another sound. This place is going to be filled with another spirit. This place is going to be filled with an overcoming that's going to overshadow your celebration and your festivity. That's going to become glorious. It is already glorious. The church is on its rise. So don't be fearful, church. Don't be fearful about how many witches you know about and how many drug addicts you know of and, and how many... How many covens and how many how many drug dens and how many gang leaders and how many whatever the negativity how many wars there are in the world there is a God on the throne this morning and we are his rising church and we are heirs of the father and joint heirs with the son and the whole earth will be filled with his glory so stand on your feet and give God an, a really rousing praise this morning